That beat goes hard. Our intro beat. I don't care what nobody says. Our intro beat goes hard. This, this is your note. <laughs> <laughs> hey, y'all. Welcome to Scholar Tea. We are on episode three. Mm-hmm. This is your boy, Cameron Carl. And the lady, Shauna. That's Shauna. Shauna. Hey, Shauna. <laughs> All right, let's take the temperature. Okay. Which black film best describes your mood today? Today. On today. On today. Mm-hmm. What I would so I know this movie came out and it's very popular, but I was thinking about it and I was like, I think it's a girl's trip because I just want to travel. Mm. Like I'm over the semester. Mm. I'm ready to wrap this thing on up. Not that I'm doing a lot of traveling this summer, but I just want to do hood rat things with my ratchet friends. That's right. That's all I want to like. I just want to like the pictures. <laughs> Can I I submit my application? (laughs) First of all, your wedding was a featured. (laughs) You were all up in the picture with the most likes. So don't even try it. Take two. It's time to take two. (laughs) No, but I'm just in the mood of like, Mm -hmm. I just want to be done and be with my friends and enjoy life. That's right. Yeah. Uh, What's your movie? My movie, but not for what folks might think, um, is School Days. Mm. I'm feeling very musical today. Oh. Mm. I like the part. It's my favorite part, actually, when it's the homecoming and they're singing the, oh, what are they called? The, let me Google this. Not the Jigaboos. No. And somebody's probably like at home. Like This, this is Tisha, Tisha Campbell. Mm-hmm. Jeff, I know they're yelling it. They're yelling at us, the answer, because uh-huh. it's on the tip of my tongue. The gamma rays. The gamma. Oh, yeah. The gamma rays. Okay. Gamma rays. So I'm thinking about the gamma rays and I like how um, no one notices the offbeat woman on the left hand side dancing just incorrectly with everyone else. She's like the Michelle, you know, of Beyonce and Destiny's Child. They always do Michelle wrong, but Michelle be putting herself in situations. So I always look at her. Jesus says, yes, the hive going to come for you. That's uh, it is what it is. Does she have a hive? What are they called? They're called... The clergy? <laughs> the choir? I, I cannot with you today. Okay. My favorite song still always is, I won't let you know, I'm not just for show. Either you'll let me go, or give me love, love, love. You gotta understand the reason why I wanna try and make this right. <laughs> You know you gotta warn people to turn their volume down. I don't wanna be alone tonight. (laughs) Well, I can see how that is your mood for today. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. So, okay, in all seriousness, let's talk about code switching for a second. Are you too tired to code switch? Mm. Recently, a beautiful photo has been circulating with this gorgeous man standing in a sweatshirt which read, too tired to code switch. Now, for those who are unfamiliar with the term, code switching is the practice of alternating between languages or variety of languages in conversation. Context is everything and is often the frame by which an individual would choose to code switch. For instance, the mannerisms and conversational style I would use at home would not win over many fans at a job interview. I wouldn't get the job. (laughs) Not at all. And among underrepresented communities in particular, code switching is necessary in a majority environment where the comfort for those around us dick 
dictates how we engage. And please don't get it twisted. Within the context of higher education, code switching occurs at PWIs and MSIs, evidence of respectability politics that manifests as a result of the internalization of colonial-based norms are very evident across institutional type. And so have you ever found yourself in a situation where you were too tired to code switch? I can talk about one. I was like every day, you know, <laughs> it's draining. Okay. So one, one moment that is really highlighted for me because it was very public was actually at Ash during the elections. I don't know who thought to put Ash mm. in Columbus, Ohio during a primary election. That was idiotic, mm-hmm. but we were surrounded by all those folks in Ohio and I was in a very suspicious mood because Trump actually won when we woke up. Right. And so for three days, I was in a haze. And I remember walking around in my don't give a fuck sweatshirt. I had my hair in a bun like I have right now. Like I didn't try to press it. I didn't come in. I didn't do nothing. I didn't put makeup on. I was just like, fuck it. Because I couldn't believe that we had just voted this man in. Mm -hmm. And I remember, I mean, it was just very public. Because in that moment, I was too drained to not think about who saw me, who engaged with me. Like I didn't care. I was completely my 100% self in that moment in a way that I normally wouldn't have been. I hear you. In the beginning, when I started teaching, I felt teaching was a performance Mm. that I had, especially when I was at Iowa State. And I would go in with my code switching. I feel like I've been code switching my whole life just because the school. Right. Yeah. For me, it's, it's just been a part of who I am. And then thinking about where I am now as an instructor is I am extremely comfortable as hell with the type of language that I use, with how I show up in spaces, sometimes more feminine and masculine, with the type of words and languages that I use as far as thinking about, you know, our premise of our talk here, like the T, the scholar T, and the type of language and words that I decide to use. I'm much more comfortable and unapologetic about that. I am teaching this semester an African-American psychology class. It's an undergraduate course, which has been the most joy of my spring semester in the sense of exploring these types of topics with students um, that know they've been doing this, but don't have the language, right? Mm. So I remember um, one of my students talking about, we got to stop code switching because we're selling out and we're doing our people a disservice. And he's the woke student in the class. Love him. I don't know if he's listening, um, but love him dearly. Very woke student. A part of me like, yes, absolutely. I agree with you. And then a part of me was like, mm, we got to be a little more critical. We use some critical thinking skills because some people are code switching for survival, mm-hmm. right? Whether it be your livelihood, whether it be your life when thinking about engagement with police, right? Whatever the situation might be is code switching for some in some situations is, is a mechanism, is a strategy of survival, mm-hmm. right? So I think really, thinking about why we do it, when do we do it, what energy do we use to do it, I think is an important part of of the conversation um, when thinking about code switching and, and its purpose and where was it birthed from and how does it play out now in our everyday life. Yeah, and I'm even thinking about um, that one rapper in particular, he challenged a panel one time to think differently about the revolution. People were saying, we need to stop all of this. It was in relation to um, police brutality. And we need to rise up. We need to start a revolution. We need to move. And his thoughts were, you know, do you know how to farm? Do you know how to shoot a gun? Like, are you actually ready for the revolution? 
where are you going to get your food if we start to revolutionize right now, right? That was my first response when I heard what you said about what the student was thinking. And I've heard it before in other venues, like we need to stop this madness and just release it. I'm like, we could, but what would we release it into? What would that mean for us before we develop some kind of structure outside of that space to exist if we're not code switching? Mm -hmm. So maybe that's our charge is to start to redefine what it means to exist in this society, in this world. So that way we can actually be our authentic selves at all moments of the day. That would be nice and it would not be so exhausting. Anyways, let's talk about Scholars of the Week. <laughs> yeah, yes. Let's dive into the show. We're going to highlight our Scholar of the Week. We have a engaging, fun, loving conversation with Ebony um, Zamani Gallagher. Highlight what's problematic. We have some jokes and we're going to get some snaps to some people that's... It's doing it. So our scholar, our scholar of the week, full transparency. I love this person. I love her dearly. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it's important to highlight her work. Mm-hmm. Um, so recently, Dr. Lissa Stapleton was announced and acknowledged as a 2018 Ford postdoctoral fellow. Dr. Stapleton was born and raised in Columbus, Ohio, and was a community director in residence life at California State University, Northridge. And as a spirituality living, learning specialist for semester at sea through her residential life work with the lighthouse living learning community international service work with the deaf jamaican and ghanaian communities and scholarly curiosity on ways to improve deaf college students lives dr stapleton decided to pursue her doctorate at iowa state university go cyclones Um, dr stapleton finished in 2014 with a degree in higher education with a minor in social justice and women's studies she won the prestigious 2000 15 Melvin D. Hardy NASPA Dissertation of the Year Award and was the runner-up for the American Association of Blacks and Higher Education Dissertation of the Year Award. Um, she taught at the University of Southern Mississippi in higher education, the student affairs program, and particularly her work explores and integrates issues of environment, equity, and access for deaf students, faculty, and staff with particular interest in the intersections of race, gender, and sexual orientation. This summer, Dr. Stapleton will be at the Penn Center for Minority-Serving Institutions as an Elevate, Enriching Learning, Enhancing Visibility, and Training Educators Fellow. What she'll be exploring her study on Black deaf students at HBCUs. Shout out to you, Dr. Alyssa Stapleton. Woo! Dr. Stapleton. All right. Do you want to spill some tea? I do. I always do. And you always get it all over the place. I do, but <laughs> I clean up real well. All right. So um, I saw this posting in Black Sap. Let's just name it. Um, and I thought it was interesting because it got me thinking as I was scrolling through. You know, I love to be a troll um, and scroll <laughs> through on the social medias. And this particular topic came up, like, if you were not in your current role, currently working in higher education, what would be your fantasy career outside of higher ed? Well, I have quite a few. <laughs> hmm So I've always wanted to have a jazz lounge Ooh. with an adjacent art gallery. And I'm still oh, not necessarily, I know, right? <laughs> um, I'm not completely not going to do it. It's just I understand that there's a lot about the the restaurant industry that I'm not familiar Mm -hmm. with. And I wouldn't want it to tank because I don't understand the business aspects of 
of that world. Yeah. But I saw it as a place where, you know, we would have Common in there. That's when I still had a crush on him. I think he's kind of dopey now. But uh, Common, I would have, like, uh, Mar- am I saying it right? Marsha Ambrosius singing songs. Jill Scott belting about her latest divorce. Like, <laughs> all latest. of that. Yes. Um, you know, having... Um, Warsaw Shire in the front just like writing down the latest poem Um, so I saw that as an opportunity I would love to pursue I also think now bear with me just stay with me here I'm a really good driver you know I'm I'm from Detroit um, and I learned how to drive in Detroit it's Motor City you need to learn how to be aggressive and offensive and all those things especially when you go to uh, visit Chicago because they can't drive it's just they just can't and I feel like what I've learned in learning how to drive really, really fast, particularly on the lodge, you know, back in the day, not so much now because, you know, they gentrified the hell out of Detroit. So you can't speed down the lodge like you used to. But I used to go like 90 miles an hour, 100 miles an hour down the lodge. I could do it. And I did it really well because I could (laughs) foresee these cars coming at me. I said, bear with me. And it would look like um, the entry of Star Wars where all the stars are kind of like coming at you real slow. I see cars that way. And I imagine then that I'd be an excellent, like I could be a really great pilot, I think. because You have thought about this. I really have. (laughs) Because I can see these things before they happen in a way where I can react going at warp speed. And so I could really, I could really, I think I could be a really great pilot. I could see it. I see it for you, friend. Yeah. (laughs) And I'm really good with colors, so I won't um, not test well with the colorblind test. I'm glad your illegal driving might lead to a career of <laughs> fighter jets. That's a, that's a, that's amazing. It is. Um, so I would actually be in politics. Hmm. Um, not a candidate on the ballot, mm-hmm. but I would love to be a chief of staff or a campaign strategist. Mm. Um, sometimes I think I'm a political pundit as I'm watching CNN. But I, I love the show. So I have two favorite shows in the entire world. Okay. One of them is ER. It's like, well, it will never get old. It's on Hulu. You should watch. Uh, um, or The West Wing. The West okay. Wing is like, I had to watch it again last year after the election just to restore my sanity and my faith in a already, cor- I knew it was nasty and corrupt political system, but then after the election, I was like, okay, I just, I was struggling. So this fictional world got me think like, I'm a strategist. Mm-hmm. I'm strategic. I can advise I can really think about policy in a creative way. So I would love to be like on a campaign with a candidate, running the show. That would be fun to me. You know what else you reminded me of? Mm -hmm. I I would also do interior design. Mm. I I love it. I like a lot. And I think I have a really great eye for different concepts and I can like really read people. You have a very creative mind. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. And I think like and I'm really good at like taking people's perspectives and actually making it come to fruition in ways that maybe they weren't able to, but right. they wanted to. And it's about them, not you. Exactly. Right? Yeah. Yeah. OK. So apparently I should just think about a career choice outside of higher ed because I was easily able to list off three things real quick. <laughs> just saying. But I love my job here, Patrick, <laughs> at Williams College. Thank you for paying my bills, Williams. Shout out to Williams.
I'm excited for our conversation with Dr. Ebony Zamani Gallagher. Hey. So let's get to it. Okay. Today we have Dr. Ebony Zamani Gallagher. Ebony, can you please tell us about yourself? Sure. Uh, good morning. It's great to be with you all. Uh, just a little bit about myself. I am a professor in education policy organization leadership at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. I also am the director of OCCRL, which is one of the oldest community college research hubs. Uh, next year marks our 30th anniversary, and we uh, are about the business of looking at how diverse youth and adults transition in, through, and out of community colleges. What led you to your interest in community colleges? That is funny um, to me in terms of a question because it, it was rather serendipitous. It wasn't where I had intended to study community colleges. I, in short, started my doctoral work at Illinois. It was suggested to me that I uh, look into the community college courses as elective by my then advisor. I, like a lot of people, I think had a deficit lens by which I thought about the two-year sector. And so when that was suggested to me, I said, but I'm sorry, I'm here to study higher education. What do you mean you want me to take a community college class? You know, I almost took it so literally as to think somehow he wanted me remediated on matters of higher ed, and it wasn't that at all. So I didn't have a clue. I jumped into the class. When I saw at that time that over two-thirds of Latino students that were collegians were not at four-year institutions but at community colleges, and at that time, but 1995, uh, 57% of all black collegians were at community colleges. I just thought, put a fork in me, I'm done. I ended up shifting gears, switching programs. Subsequently, my whole career trajectory um, shifted as a result of uh, literally falling in love with the community college sector because, you know, it is the only post-secondary opportunity for so many folks, and in particular, what community colleges do in terms of being a game-changer for first-generation, low-income students, students of color, veteran students, students with disabilities, you know, displaced workers, you name it. So for those minoritized voices, marginalized, overlooked, underserved student populations, community colleges have long endeavored to bring post-secondary to the masses. And so that's why I love to uh, do what I do and why I study what I study. Ebony, what I admire most about you is the way that you are able to balance and you prioritize your family, your out-of-the-academy life. So can you talk to us about what brings you joy outside of the academy? Sure. What brings me joy outside of the academy? Um, there are several things. In particular, uh, again, y'all trying to make me just have laugh-out-loud moments and <laughs> get my chuckle on. I pressed mute when you said I had balance. You know, but honestly, it, it's a juggling act. And it's a delicate balancing act. I think for many of us, we're that sandwich generation, right? So that um, we may have young families and, and we are also, you know, kind of child rearing, but we also may have older parents and or loved ones where there are some responsibilities to them as well as to our spouses. And, and so, you know, I think what brings me joy is, being able to make them proud, you know, so with some of the things that I do professionally, that is a point of pride and, and for my family as well. But more than that is knowing that that is neither here nor there to them. Um, what matters to us is that we're healthy and whole, um, that we understand our source and supply is from on high. 
Um, so when you say I'm balanced and I know that I'm not, I do know that while it might look seamless and, and look really together, that I'm only able to do what I have been able to do because I've been highly favored. <laughs> God is good. And I have a loving and supportive family and, um, you know, support system in terms of my husband, my children, you know, my aunt is rolling with me right now and, and just kind of listening in. But they keep me grounded. They bring me joy. And if I fail to get another publication or land a grant, my, my perspective is such that my priorities are them. And so, you know, when you put that in, in the right order, God, family, then everything else can kind of fall into place in terms of your profession and your health. And thinking about all of those things, this kind of might tie into that a bit. Can you talk a bit more about your t-shirt line and what inspired that? Oh, yeah, that is that is a source of joy for me. I have this creative side. I think as scholars, many of us, when we think about our scholarship, it is truly a, a scholarly creative activity of sorts. And I have always also been one of those folks that have enjoyed uh, poetry and, and just writing, but not writing, you know, for the dearth of individuals or our elite kind of academic community, but, you know, doing things and, and giving voice to social issues, um, raising social consciousness. And then I, um, I'm a t-shirt hog. I love, I have well over a hundred t-shirts. I collect t-shirts. I've been collecting t-shirts. Kind of my favorite thing that, uh, I don in terms of wearing this is usually like jeans, um, and a t-shirt. And so I thought, how can I blend my love for t-shirts and also my passion around social justice issues, social consciousness, elevate to educate in terms of higher learning? Um, and folk of color in particular within academe. So it's, it's really kind of where all of those things were able to intersect. And, and so I have found that that's great in terms of bringing me joy, bringing me balance to, to have a hobby and to have a passion outside of, you know, campus. Where can we see the products that you've been making? Like- yeah, let's plug the T-shirts. Plug the T-shirts. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. Um, you know, it's Our Scholarship Matters. So O-U-R, scholarshipmatters.com uh, is where you can find all the T-shirts. You can also find us on Instagram um, at Our Scholarship One and Facebook uh, at Our Scholarship Matters. And so one of the things that we have unveiled just this month is a new HBCU line. And so it's not just with the T-shirts, but we've come with a complement of other accessories. So we have our beer steins and mugs, and we also have tote bags and throw pillows and cell phone cases and you name it. So um, there's different lines. So the HBCU line, the Black um, Minds Matter line, and then other assortments of, again, educationally uplifting t-shirts that are about um, underscoring folk of color, bringing to the center minoritized and marginalized voices. So we have LGBTQ shirts. We have shirts around grad student life. So there's there's some for everybody. And you said you're a t-shirt hog. So what is on some of your favorite t-shirts? Oh, let's see. One that I actually had on last week, which says the fave is, it says that I have a good mind. I got a good heart, but my mouth though. <laughs> <laughs> right. Because I cuss a little. Mm-hmm. And then I guess, Kind of related to that is uh, a shirt I have that says, I'm, I'm classy, but a couple of them. need that shirt. <laughs> I cuss a lot, though. <laughs> I'm trying to keep it clean for this, but we'll see how long that lasts. <laughs>
I know, Ebony, every time I see you, like you, your energy, right? It's always your energy for me that I could be in a mood. I could be given a side eye. I could be just not there. But your mood always brings me to a place. But you also always offer and I sometimes request your your advice. And I was wondering if you would share a little advice for some emerging scholars, emerging practitioners who are trying to engage in some transformational change. And what has that looked like for you? And what advice would you have people that are kind of in the trenches right now? Sure. You know, so I think that one of the things in terms of surviving the academy as a scholar of color is that we have to understand the PNT process in terms of promotion and tenure that even once you go through that and then you jump through another hoop um, of another promotion, right, trying to get to full professor, that throughout that whole track, you can't lose sight of doing things that you're passionate about. You want to stay grounded in work that is, you know, meaningful and and makes you feel centered in terms of you really acting out and living um, your purpose. And so I think much of the work that I've done over the years, I've I've tried to make sure that um, I stay centered in that because I think that's the only way then we can do some things that are more transformative is to make sure that, you know, if we are engaged and work around each one, reach one, teach one, and uplift, then that way we can um, kind of chip away at and make a difference in the lives of the students that we mentor and, you know, the seeds that they plant with the folks that come after them. The onus is upon us to reach back, give back, and when we get up, also lift and pull others up uh, with us. And and the thing, too, Cameron, you mentioned, you know, um, my energy. Well, part of it is, you know, emerging scholars, they have a way of re-energizing me. It is really wonderful to kind of um, almost have a reset of sorts as we get to come into contact, for those of us that have been out here a couple decades or more now, come into contact with scholars in training with newly minted PhDs and newer faculty, you know, and and experiencing some of the joys and the challenges, right, and talking through some of those with you and helping you strategize about how to, you know, traverse that. And so that energizes me because I also see that while I'm excited about the pipeline that we have and who's to come and who's already in it, that it's still paltry. We, We need more of us, particularly us that aren't perennial associate professors and um, get to the rank of full. So that's something that, um, you know, that energizes me, that um, makes me want to continue to do what I do. And then when it's you, it's you, man. Like, so Cameron, how many times have I told you every time I see you, like, you just smile and I'm like, put a fork in me, I'm done. (laughs) Like, you had me a hello. You know, that kind of thing. So I think it's this reciprocity, right? And so my love language is that of a giver. Mm. Like, I like to pour Mm. And I do so in an unsolicited way sometimes where I just insert self. Um, More often than not, that's welcome. But there are occasions where there are, you know, young scholars or doc students that they can't pick up what I'm putting down. They don't know how to receive it Mm. or they don't even believe it. Like, why is she showing interest in me? You know, so but we're all, you know, worthy and we all have value. And, you know, it's just my pleasure and joy to, to be able to you know, be on a journey with you all. So that gives me, you know, new energy to to keep it moving. And what kind of maybe advice would you have for those that are a little more in the middle, like maybe those that are trying to gain another promotion, even though they have acquired tenure? Right. We still don't do enough, I think, in terms of mentorship of faculty. 
faculty that have already gone through the PNT process, right? Mm -hmm. So I think a couple of years ago, James Earl Davis uh, had said to me, kind of on the side, he's like, Eb, you know, I'm looking around the room. Where are all of the black female full professors? He said, so I see you, and I see so-and-so, and I see such-and-such, but I can't count past three fingers. And I'm like, no, it has to be more than three of us, right? But then we literally could not come up with, and we were even trying to take into account folks who weren't in attendance at ASH. And so as we were doing that, I said, dang. So I'm talking to Mary Howard Hamilton after that, and we ended up doing a symposium where we talked about this notion of, I think, once folks kind of go through the process where we go, okay, they're good. But people still need mentoring at different stages through their career. And so we just have to do a better job about that because I think that sometimes we just feel like folks have already or or the folks themselves might feel like, you know, well, I got this, you know. But again, when we look at the numbers, there's only 1% of all professors that are full and black women. And I never thought I'd be like a 1%, right? But I'm, I'm, I'm the 1%. And that's not adequate. That can't be satisfying, right? So we have to figure out how to be in a company of more of our sisters at that rank. So we've been having conversations. We've been doing, you know, stuff on the side. Since that time, in that period, we had a nice group, a wave that came through. But again, it's not where, you know, it's this surplus, right? So Lori Patton Davis and Sherry Watt, but we're still real thin. And, And that goes for the brothers, too. So we got work to do. So our last little thing that we do with our wonderful guest is we do this thing called a speed round. And we give you two options and you have to pick one and you can't think over it. You got to just, the first thing that comes to your mind or that you relate to, that's the one you pick. So would you like to play with us? Okay. Okay. Sure. All right. So writing or reading? Reading. Coffee or tea? Coffee. Wine glass or coffee mug? Coffee mug. Detroit or Chicago? Can you say Shaft City? <laughs> no, I can't. <laughs> Rihanna or Beyonce? Ooh, I would go with Beyonce. Pink or green? <laughs> Both. <laughs> I don't know, Sarah. Thank you again so much for your time. Um, We really appreciate it. Tell your auntie, thank you for letting us share some time with you, even though... Oh, yeah, you just uh, made me think of my my favorite line from from the Black Panther movie. Hey, auntie. Hey, auntie. (laughs) Hey. 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 Always holding it down, always has my back, so... Like I said, what brings me joy is just being blessed with loved ones, good friends and family and health at this rate, you know, trying to pay more attention to that. So, yeah, uh, this was fun. Thank you. you. We'll see you in them conference streets. Mm. And those (laughs) T-shirts. And those T-shirts. That's right. Get yours today. Our scholarshipmatters.com. That's right. (laughs) Thank you for your time. All right. Take good care. Safe travels. Bye-bye.
was really, really enriching, and we really enjoyed. I her. just love her. I know she's the best. I love her energy. If you don't know her, meet her. F- find her on the Twitter. That's right. Buy some items from her. That's right. Get your shirts. <laughs> and, and I love you, not in a creepy way. <laughs> <laughs> um, there's a recent article that came out about what's the difference between a frat and a gang. I think we both have some thoughts around this. This article that was published on March 20th in The Atlantic, the title was, What's the Difference Between a Frat and a Gang? And so we thought we would talk a little bit about the article and share some pieces of it. And we want to hear what you think. Email us your responses at scholarT2018 at gmail.com. So, again, The Atlantic, Kendi writes, When I thought about locking up with the crew in 1996, I wanted to see a full initiation first, not parts I stumbled upon over the years. My friend Cliff and I arrived at a park not close from my home in Jamaica, Queens. Leaves danced with the wind around our feet, wafting an airy feeling in my 14-year-old black body. The grounds of the initiation beckoned, a high-rise chain-link fence enclosing two basketball courts. Through the daylighted chain, I watched scowls and punches and stomps engulf the uninitiated teen, a stoppage, then an awkward transition into hugs, handshakes, and smiles, the striking contrast shot at my core with authenticity, the insincerity of the punch hug, of the stomp smile, murdering my thoughts of joining a crew. The same feeling shot within me five years later in 2001 when I thought about joining a college fraternity. The rumors of beatings and sexual assaults overwhelmed me like the worn-down bodies of pledges inching around campus, unclothed in hazing. The before contrasted vividly again with the after. The excitable energy of the sparkling new brothers when they came out each year to the deafening cheers of their potential victims, especially in sororities. And then he goes on, he talks a little bit about statistics, but then he says, no one really knows how often violence occurs in urban communities or how often sexual violence occurs on or off college campuses, but I do know the perception of danger could not be more different. I do know societal perceptions and reactions to gangs and fraternities could not be more different. Consider this series of contrasts, toughness toward savage gang boys versus softness toward immature frat men. So we wanted to talk a little bit about not only the complicated layers of comparing fraternities with gangs, but also in this, at first you think he's talking about maybe a black fraternity because that's, I mean, you assume, right? I mean, a lot of assumptions. There was, yeah. a, And it's in the Atlantic, but then he transitions into actually a conversation on the contrasts of gangs and predominant communities of color and uh, white fraternities. So um, what are your initial thoughts when you're thinking about the parallels people continue to try to draw between fraternities in particular will leave sororities alone today and gangs? Yeah, I mean, I see it. I mean, I'm I'm a member of a fraternity mm-hmm. and I can see the simplistic understanding of this group being a gang, right? Like being seen as a gang. But I also see the hypocrisy of prosecuting, holding accountable the gang activity of an inner city urban community, right? Whereas the illegality of the activities happening within a fraternity are sometimes just as severe and sometimes just as life-threatening. And to see no one be held accountable, there's an issue there as far as what that looks like, as far as a due process, as far as prosecution. 
the the parallel also is the no snitching, right? Like so, mm. the, the no snitching culture that happens in gangs, and also the no snitching culture that happens in fraternity life, specifically around hazing. But it could be hazing, drinking, sexual assault. All of that is embedded in the culture, right? So in some ways, I struggle because I'm like, ah. I'm not a gang. I'm uplifting society, right? Like I'm I'm a part of an organization that is about manly deed, quote unquote manly deeds, right? Like those things hold true to our values and who we are. But can I totally understand how we can be perceived, received, and understood as a gang? Absolutely. And I think it's interesting how there's this rush to tie a large group, we'll say predominantly male group of color, because, I mean, there's different types of fraternities out there that service different types of populations. And so the rush to tie parallels between male groups of color on campus and gangs and gang life in ways that you don't see that with any other group. And they're quick to try and do it. And it's really funny because I always see these connections between all these systems like higher education, the criminal justice system, the the economic system. Right. Right. And and people, I feel like oftentimes try to combat me when I draw those parallels. But the moment when I also then try to, to bring up the fact that people do this in other venues, a.k.a. trying to say that this group is a gang then they're quick to jump on board with that. So I think it's interesting where where in one situation I'm saying there are strong connections between these systems. And, and let me give you examples. Um, people will decline those. But then when we're talking about large bodies that are predominantly people of color, then there's a bandwagon mentality of then connecting them to basically the criminal justice system and saying that they're criminal. You know, their presence on yeah. campus is criminal. There's also a cultural issue of not fully exploring and understanding and disrupting masculinity. That's right. And how masculinity shows up, how masculinity is perpetuated, when is it toxic, when is it healthy. We as a society are not ready or able to engage in a critical conversation about that and how it then plays out in every other aspect of patriarchy and inequity in our society. I would even love to have a more insular conversation within different communities of color on that topic, Mm -hmm. right? Because we all have different vantage points. There will never be one solid conclusion, right? But I'd be interested in investigating that theme a little bit deeper because I feel like a lot of our hurt is still entrenched in some of these ideas on what gender is Mm -hmm. and what gender isn't. And I feel like if we could just release those bonds from ourselves, we would be in much better shape. We'd be much more healthy. Oh, absolutely. But but what gender is upholds capitalism, Mm -hmm. upholds patriarchy, upholds uh, ableism, upholds heteronormative behavior. But then I also, I do wonder then with all of that, there is this desire to replicate that amongst certain individuals to reify some of those toxic issues, Mm -hmm. reify dangerous understandings of what it means to be a male of color. And I do think it plays out in these processes that happen on campus. I always wonder what kind of interventions the graduate chapters or international headquarters could maybe play in trying to appease some of those things from happening. I do know that a lot of the underground rituals that existed, they went underground because of the 1990 passage of regulation, I would say, that wasn't really thought out very well. And so I wonder if there's even conversation around, you know, reconsidering what some of this might mean or what some of this could look like in a way that allows for sacred ritual, because ritual is important to unmask some of those behaviors that can be harmful. I'd be interested to see that happen. Thanks for emailing us. Thanks for shouting us out on Twitter. ScholarT2018 at gmail.com. 
Don't forget to purchase a shirt from the talented Dr. Ebony Zamani Gallagher at www.ourscholarshipmatters.com. All right. Should we get to what's problematic? Yes. So what's problematic, the T this week, is social media etiquette. Oh, shit. You don't really be on there, though. No. Okay. There's a reason. I be on there, but I don't be on there. Mm-hmm. So some people don't like that type of etiquette, right? On there just to scroll, but not to engage. Mm. I do that a lot on Facebook. Oh, you are a troll. I, I am a troll on Facebook. <laughs> but let, so let's talk about it real quick. Okay. 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 So I know I'm about to fend some folks. But the first thing that's problematic about social media etiquette are these people that have their Twitter account attached to their Facebook account. So everything you tweet is popping up on your newsfeed. Mm. And I can count about five people right now on top of my head, know them very well, Mm. very close, told some of them. It's a pet peeve. They didn't care. But I don't need to know that you were in the line at McDonald's getting your french fries and then you're posting a video of the latest CNN alert, right? Like it's just too much going on. And for me, it could be because of the way I use social media and the way I socialize with social media. And I need to understand that everybody is not me mm-hmm. and that's not how they're going to engage. Mm-hmm. But I've been on Facebook since 2014. Like the first year it came out, you know, IU was one of the schools after, you know, that list of Harvard and other places that had it. In 2004? I've had, yeah. Okay. I've had Facebook since sophomore year. I got on Facebook. I remember the day. You had right? to have an EDU account. Dot EDU, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. And there's some elitism and some classism mm-hmm. that, that happened with that. But then when everybody else, they mama, they cousin, they friends too, got on there, it did become a different thing and a different space. So I started to distance myself with like the things, like when memories pop up and you see things you used to post. <laughs> I'm like, oh gosh. But like... I don't do that anymore, right? Uh-huh. But then I also got mature and became, you know. But then here comes Twitter, here comes Instagram, Snapchat, right? So I have I have Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Mm-hmm. And what I have done with my social media, I have compartmentalized them. Mm-hmm. Where some people's like social media is one thing to them, and all those things mean the same thing, and they engage with those things all in the same way. Live your life. I'm just telling you, for me, it's problematic. For me, Facebook is a space where it's just too much going on on there and people are doing the absolute most with nothing at all. Um, (laughs) And I have decided that I am not going, like it's just not a space to give a play-by-play of my day-to-day. And for me, that space is where I update on my life. Okay. So if there's a something happening in my life that I'm not about to sit on the phone and call everybody, cousins and aunties and people I went to undergrad with and, you know, chapter brothers, then I'm going to use that space to update people on my life. And I can hit one full swoop and you're going to tell you who you're going to pass it along. That's how I've used that space probably in the last 10 years or so. I think I've used that space for that. Twitter now, Twitter has become a space where I get my news. Okay. You know, I don't have a subscription to the New York Times or the Washington Post or my local newspaper. And at the first thing in the morning, as I'm scrolling through what's trending that day, what's the news, what's happening in politics, what's happening in pop culture, it really is where I get my news from. But it's also where I've tried to now create a scholarly identity. If an article comes out that I've collaborated on, I've published, I share it there. I share my peers' work there. It's where I find a lot of critical scholarship and it's a space to engage scholarly, politically, and some activism through Twitter. Instagram now. Instagram is where I get to live my life out loud. I get to be, in some ways, fully human. I get to share my travels. I get to see what other people are doing. I get to be a mess box on there. I get to see the the Insta thoughts and follow some of 
the Insta thoughts on there. I enjoy Instagram, but it's also personal, right? So I'm screening who wants to follow me. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's much more like okay, I gotta keep a lock on that because that's mine. To me, that's mine. I feel like Facebook was mine at one time and I lost it. Like that is no longer mine, so I'm not necessarily engaging in that space in a fully authentic way as I'm engaging with Instagram. Yeah, I agree with Facebook. I know some of the reasons why I don't use social media in general that much is just because I am already overwhelmed and saturated with information. Mm -hmm. And to also then keep up with this online persona when I have to just deal with my regular life persona, like I don't have time. Oh my goodness. I just can't. Can we talk about about that just for a second? Okay. People are building and creating lives (laughs) for likes. You are creating a life for a like. Mm -hmm. I don't have time for that. I don't have the energy. I don't. And it's not even that. I'm just like, the first thing I don't think to do if I stub my toe or if I lock my keys out my car is to tell everybody about it. <laughs> I'm looking for my keys. I'm putting a Band-Aid on my toe. Like, and then I'm going to that next meeting that I got to work at because yeah. I got to make these coins. So you're, I mean, you're hashtag booked. Yeah. yeah. Oh, my God. It's yeah. so ridiculous. And so Facebook for me has become like the monumental things at this point. Mm-hmm. And then sometimes I have a thought that I really want to share with someone other than myself. And so I'll put it there. Twitter. I like Twitter. I don't have the wherewithal to explore it. I think it's cool. Mm -hmm. But when I do tweet, I like it because I can at people that I don't know. (laughs) So I use Twitter to cuss out politicians. I mean, I actually use legitimate cuss words and just at them. And I got that from uh, John's lovely partner. What's her name? Because I'm not reducing her down to a partnership. She's all her own person. Uh, Chrissy Teigen. Chrissy Teigen. I like her a lot. (laughs) Oh, my God. And I remember one time she was going hard on someone like, at me. If you're going to talk about me, at me. So I was like, that's right. So I will. And so like I'm always adding Donald Trump. Um, someone was trying to pass policy on abortion rights in Ohio, added the hell out of him, cussed him the hell out, right? So that's what Twitter is. So you'll see me from time to time raging, and that's all it is. But it's like once every three months. <laughs> I, was like, I was like, do I follow you on Twitter? <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm so dormant. It's just like there's so much going on. I like Instagram, too, for that reason. It's very private. I, I think I only... You really engage on, on Instagram. Yeah, I love it because that's where I actually yeah. like show me mm-hmm. completely. That's where I'll actually have pictures of my family, mm-hmm. you know, and the day-to-day stuff. But I use it more even for, like, a visual journal. I'm a visual person. Yeah, I can see that. And so I like it more just to collect the beautiful things that I see. Ooh, can I, so can I see, so something you do that's problematic. Me? <laughs> <laughs> so Instagram has this feature now where you can select multiple photos for one post. I like them all. Shauna will have your whole feed of her Saturday afternoon. And I'm like, Shana, this could... Because I like these, to see them individually. These eight different ankles of this painting could have been one beautiful post. I like it that way. And you know what? My daughter's 11. She says the same thing. <laughs> She's like, Mommy, you could have just... And I was like, no. I want to see the blocks. I want to see the squares. When I look at my pictures, I want to see oh, them so all. So you do that for you. Yeah. Got it. Okay. I do it for myself, not for other people. Like, <laughs> actually, Instagram is really for me. I understand. And I have a few other friends that do this, too. Like, sometimes we will take a picture of a place just so we can remember where we were. Yeah. You know, so we can remember to go back. So I also use it kind of as, like, my visual Rolodex of places I want to remember. Mm-hmm. But, no, that's that's why I do it that way. Sorry I'm so problematic. <laughs> I will take up your whole Insta feed. I will. Love it. All right. All so right. so I have jokes. Joke of the week. <laughs> joke of the week. Get ready to laugh. Okay. okay. Here, All right. Me, ready? Let me see. Are you, let me Get see. your game face. Okay. 
All right. I just watched a documentary about beavers. It was the best damn show I ever saw. (laughs) Why do seagulls fly over the sea? Why? Because if they flew over a bay, they would be bagels. (laughs) (laughs) I just visualize it. Why did the invisible man turn down the job offer? Why? He couldn't see himself doing it. <laughs> how how could he be employee of the month? <laughs> how do you make holy water? How? <laughs> you boil the hell out of it. <laughs> okay, last one, last one. Why didn't the vampire attack Taylor Swift? Too pale. She had bad blood. (laughs) (laughs) And she's a hater. All right. Well, again, we really want to thank uh, Dr. Zamani Gallagher for her time. Also, many congratulations to the following folks who recently defended their dissertations. Desiree Anderson, Tierney Bates, Tristan Carmichael, Armando Collins, Joy Cox, Tiara T. Ellis, Leon Harris III, Jamal Kennedy, Kristen Roberson, and DeAndre Thompson. Hey, friend. Hey, friend. Congratulations to all of you for making this milestone in your life and the dedication of hard work that we both know that took. Mm-hmm. Many, 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 many congratulations. The immeasurable James Baldwin once said, not everything that is faced can be changed but nothing can be changed until it is faced. As change agents and thought leaders, our challenge to you this week is to make efforts towards facing some of the challenges that plague our communities, our places of work, our society. Revolutions are comprised of small steps coalescing to form tidal waves. Be encouraged and do your best to form a wave. Until next week. Peace. is completely crazy that's true i i can explain i'm from new york originally first of all so that yeah we don't drive we don't drive in new york and i and i'm from the polar opposite i'm from the motor city i'm from detroit and so you have to drive or you get stabbed yeah